grab your Bible, turn to John chapter 21. Uh, We are finishing up today a series on home. We've been talking about uh, biological family relationships, earthly family relationships, fathers and mothers and children and uh, husbands and wives and all this kind of stuff through this series on home. Today, we're transitioning just a little bit. Uh, We're going to look at the spiritual family the spiritual home. I, I told you last week, it's Mother's Day, so we're going to talk about every mom's favorite topic. If you get around a mom, what's she inevitably going to end up talking about? Her kids, right? It, it just happens. There's, it's irresistible for moms to talk about their kids. And so we're going to talk about your favorite topic today, moms. We're going to talk about kids, and we're going to talk about what the church's role and the church's responsibility is to children, to the next generation. So I get to preach one of my absolute favorite passages in Scripture. I have not preached on this in years, uh, but this is a passage that had one of the, the deepest impacts on me personally. When I first really got a hold of this, uh, when I was around 20 years old, uh, it, it really helped impact me and shape me and the call that God had for me in ministry. So I am fired up to get to share this with you this morning. I'm excited to get, dig into to this story and these handful of verses. Just to give you some context for what's happening here in John 21, Jesus has already died on the cross for our sins. Uh, God has raised him from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and come back to earth and appeared an, a number of times to his disciples by this point. And, and this specific story, the disciples are out fishing, and the way that they fished, the, the most productive way for them to fish was actually to fish overnight. That was when the, the fish were easiest to catch. So this boat was out overnight. They're out fishing, and it, daybreak has just come. Dawn has just come, and they're bringing their ship into shore. And as they bring their ship into shore, they see Jesus on the beach. Uh, Jesus has built a campfire. I like the picture of Jesus just hanging out by a campfire. I think that's pretty cool. There's just something about a campfire that's irresistible. Uh, and so Jesus is hanging out by the fire, and he's making breakfast. Now, he isn't making the kind of breakfast that we make by a campfire when we're camping. He's making some fish, uh, which I've never had fish for breakfast. I, I don't know if you have. That's not something that I, I would normally associate with breakfast, but it's what they had. Uh, so Jesus is out by the fire. He's making fish, and the, the disciples spot him along way off. In fact, Peter spots him. And Peter, as you know, is the one who acts first and thinks later, right? So what does Peter do? He, he jumps out of the boat and he starts swimming. I'm going to beat everybody else to Jesus. And sure enough, he gets there and eventually the, the whole crew gets there and they sit down and they have breakfast together. And after they have breakfast, Jesus and Peter have a conversation. This is their first one-on-one conversation that's recorded since Jesus died and rose again. The last conversation we knew that was specific between Peter and Jesus was when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him three times. And sure enough, Peter did. Peter denied Jesus three times. And so this is their first conversation that they've had, just the two of them, in quite a while. And we get to pick up the conversation in verse 15. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? First thing that I love about this is they're, they're getting into what's kind of a tense situation, right? Kind of an awkward conversation. Have you ever let somebody down? You ever promised somebody something and you didn't deliver? And the, the first time that you see them, the first time you get a chance to talk to them afterwards, man, you're, you're feeling kind of guilty. You're feeling a little bit ashamed. I think Peter comes into this conversation with some shame. And with some guilt, and so this is, a, it's a little tense. And I love the principle here. Before Jesus gets into the hard conversation, he makes sure they eat first. He's like, let's not deal with this on an empty stomach, right? We're not going to be hangry. Uh, we're not going to be uncomfortable. Uh, and 
the Bible chooses to tell us that. I think there's, there's some depth there. I think there's some, some insight there, a principle there. So they eat first, so I praise God for that. They ate first, and then they got to the hard stuff. And so Jesus asked this question, do you love me more than these? And you can sense kind of the offense in Peter's response, right? He's like, why would you ask me that? Of course I love you. If, if your spouse asks you if you love them, that's usually a sign of some frustration, right? Like you, you're not showing it well enough. You're not demonstrating it. Something's off when they say, hey, do you love me? And so Peter feels the frustration from Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Has this not been proven? Has this not been established? And Jesus responds with three little words. And those little words are not, I love you. Those little words are, feed my lambs. Verse 16, it says, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. First, he says, feed my lambs. Second time, he says, take care of my sheep. But he doesn't stop there. You know the story. It's in the third time, verse 17, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. I, I love the honesty of scripture. Just the rawness of it. These are real people, right? These are real people with real insecurities, with, with the same issues and the same struggles that we have. It says that Peter was hurt that Jesus would ask him again. And he says, he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. This wasn't just a spouse asking, hey, do you love me? This is the one who is all-knowing. He's like, Jesus, you know my heart. Maybe the other disciples don't know. Maybe they question if I love you because I blew it, because I dropped the ball, because I didn't follow through with what I promised you. But Jesus, you know my heart. You know how much I love you. You know how much I care about you. Why are you asking me this, Jesus? And Jesus responds again, and he says, feed my sheep. And there's a few things going on in this conversation. The first thing, as you are probably aware, is Jesus is restoring Peter. Right? For each time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus gives him the chance to say, I love you. Right? He gives him the opportunity one more time to, to affirm that, yes, I love you. Yes, I blew it. Yes, I denied you. But the reality is, Jesus, I love you. And so he's restoring him. He's putting him back to the place where he's supposed to be. Peter is like the mouthpiece of the disciples. Right? He's the one who's boldest. He's the one who's going to speak up the first. He's the one who, who, who's the go-getter. If we read through the book of Acts, almost the first half of the book of Acts, Peter is the central figure. He's the one who is leading the church into this new era as Jesus transitions off of earth and back to heaven next to his father. And so Peter is this massively important figure and, and Jesus is restoring him very gently. I love that we serve a God of restoration. I love that we serve a God that, that when I blow it, when I miss it, when I, my life and my actions deny him, he still says, here's another chance. Here's another opportunity. So Jesus restores him, but he doesn't just restore him. He passes the baton to him. Jesus has, has been the central figure of this earthly ministry for three and a half years. And now he's choosing and, and identifying Peter. Hey, I'm giving you the baton. You're going to lead this thing. You're going to take this next leg in this race. And so as he hands the baton of ministry to Peter, he doesn't just tell him, feed my lambs or feed my sheep, because Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And all of us are his sheep. You are a sheep. I'm a sheep. We are his sheep. But he doesn't just say, feed my sheep. The first thing he says is, feed my lambs. As Jesus is passing the responsibility of earthly ministry to Peter, he gives him the first responsibility is the next generation. 
The first responsibility is the little sheep. Now, we, we could call a lamb a baby sheep. In fact, that's probably what my kids would say if you ask them what's a, what's a lamb. They would say a baby sheep. I think in this context, we can call it an immature sheep, uh, a sheep that's not fully grown yet, right? A sheep is an adult, is mature. A lamb is, is immature, has some room for growth. And so Jesus transitions this responsibility to the church, to the one who's leading the church, and he says, I want you to feed my lambs. I believe this is a passage for the church. I believe this is a responsibility he didn't just give to Peter. I don't think he just gave it to leaders in the church. I don't think he just gave it to children's directors or pastors. I believe he gave this responsibility to the church in general. That yes, we need to feed sheep. Yes, adults matter. Yes, mature people matter. But the first thing we got to do is we got to look after the immature ones. The first thing we got to do is we got to have after those who are not fully grown yet. So this is my responsibility. This is your responsibility. This is our responsibility. So it's Mother's Day. Hopefully you got your mom something, a card, a gift, some sort of thing to remember her. Hopefully you got your, your mother of your children, if you're a husband like I am, and a father, something to, to commemorate the day and say thank you for all that she's done. We're going to talk about five gifts today that I believe the church needs to give to kids. Five things in, in sharing our responsibility and sharing our role and our load for the next res- generation. What are five gifts that kids need from the church? If we are going to raise up these lambs, And bring them up in the family of God to become sheep. What do they need? Well, the first thing they need is kids need a place to learn about Jesus. Kids need a place to learn about Jesus. This is the obvious one, right? This is the surface level one. This is the one that I probably didn't even need to put in your notes because you already know it. But let's just go ahead and say it. Let's call it what it is. Kids need a place to come and to learn about Jesus. Uh, In Deuteronomy 6, God gives this command to his people. The people of Israel, which I believe we are spiritually grafted in. We are now Israel, uh, as far as God is concerned, the church is. And so he says this in Deuteronomy 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What does Jesus come along later and say? He says that's the greatest commandment. That's the first commandment, right? This is the most important thing we can do is to love God with all that we have. Now that he gives us that foundation, he goes on and he talks about the next generation. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And then he says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Talk about them when you walk along the road. Talk about them when you lie down. Talk about them when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What's he saying? He's saying, take advantage of every teachable moment. Take advantage of of every chance you get to put my word and my truth and the love of God into your kids. Why? Because there's a whole world out there that's going to take every opportunity to put what they want into your kids. So we've got to seize every single chance we get. So what does that mean? That means includes when they're at church. They need another place where they can come and they can learn about Jesus, where they can be taught, where they can be poured into, where someone can make an impact in their lives. I was blessed to grow up in church. I was blessed to grow up in a family that that loved Jesus and that kept us in church. We were in church almost every Sunday in my life growing up, Uh, and, and I'm so grateful for those experiences, those experiences in children's ministry, those experiences in youth ministry. Now, the reality is I saw some great things. I saw some bad things right? If you grow up in church, you probably saw some nonsense. You probably saw some foolishness. Why does this connect to our series on home? 
Because just like there's no perfect family, there's no perfect church family. Just like every family has a level of dysfunction, every church family has a level of dysfunction. Some more dysfunctional than others. Um, but, but the reality is it's, it doesn't always go the way it's supposed to. But God has said, I want you to take advantage of every opportunity to put into your kids. I'm grateful that right now, for the second service this morning, somebody is back there with my five-year-old and my six-year-old and my crazy, crazy, crazy 15-month-old. Pray for them when they get out of Kid City after watching Noah, because I promise you he is keeping them busy for that hour and 15 minutes while they're in there. Uh, it's just who he is and how he rolls. So grateful that there's somebody who's, who's doing that, who's praying for my kids, who's loving on my kids. And if you've got a kid in Kid City, I'm sure you're grateful for that as well. I want to thank you to all those of you who serve in Kid City. I know there's a number of you in the room, even right now, that you serve in Kid City, man. Thank you for loving on our kids. Thank you for making that happen, man. If you see Regina today, Madison today, go out of your way to, to thank those people, those people who taught your kids, because they are putting their heart and their life their ministry into your children. They need a place where they can hear about Jesus. They can be taught about Jesus. Here's the reality. The reality is kids are going to learn anywhere they go. The question is, what are they learning? Right? They are sponges. They are soaking up everything that they see, everything that they hear. Uh, They're grabbing a hold of all of it, and they're going to grab it. They're going to learn something. So what are we exposing them to? What are we giving them to soak up? If you're a parent in this room, I don't have to tell you this. You already know, uh, man, that anything that you say can and will be used against you by your child, right? Children are walking accountability. If you've got an issue with your tongue, have kids uh, because you will find out very, very quickly that, man, I need to get this under control because my kids are saying this stuff that I don't need to be saying, right? There's just something about children that they're going to grab whatever it is around them. So what are we giving them to grab hold of? I mean, I'm grateful for a children's ministry that's giving them something, for a youth ministry that's giving the next generation something that points them to Jesus, that teaches them about Jesus. I know I told you this wasn't going to be about parenting today, but I do want to give one side note specifically to parents. Here's a great resource uh, that my wife and I have stumbled upon recently that we, we're only a couple chapters into, but the couple chapters we've read have been phenomenal, and we believe that the whole thing is probably going to be great. It's, a, it's an ebook called Raising Tiny Disciples. It's by a lady named Felicia Masonheimer, and the premise of this book is essentially this passage from Deuteronomy, that man, when you walk, when you sit, wherever you go, how do we disciple our children? How do we raise them up? Because the reality is the church can come alongside, the church can be a benefit, the church can reinforce what's being taught in the home, but the most important people in the life of a child is always going to be the parents. Right? You're the ones who, are, who have given the responsibility, first and foremost, to disciple them. So, so let's take advantage of that. Let's seize that. Grab a hold of that resource. I think it's like 12 bucks. Uh, it's somewhere in that vein. If, if for some reason you can't afford that, let us know and the church will buy it for you. Um, I, I really believe in what we've seen from this. I think it's going to be an awesome, awesome resource for all of us as parents. I know it's been good for us in, in just giving us a mindset of how to do some of these things. But kids need a place to learn about Jesus. Secondly, they need a place to connect. Kids need a place to connect. This is a gift the church needs to give to children. Right now, kids are experiencing isolation like never before. 
right? Like, like even my son, my six-year-old, who is super extroverted and a social butterfly, and he loves to be around people, uh, he this week was talking to me about how at their desks at school, they put four desks together, and they've got plexiglass in between the desks. And I'm like, you're in kindergarten, and you know what plexiglass is. How has this even happened, right? Like, what a unique world that my six-year-old can even say the word plexiglass and know what he's talking about when he says it. But, but kids are isolated right now. Why? Because all of us are isolated right now. All of us are disconnected. I was just reading a story this week uh, about the impact of isolation. And, and the reality is we're not going to know how deeply impacted people have been by corona isolation for, for years. Like This stuff is going to continue to unpack and it's going to continue to have ramifications long after we've put the masks away, long after everything is open and you don't have to worry about yellow ropes keeping us from sitting in certain sections and social distancing and all that stuff. There's going to be impact from this isolation that reverberates for a long time. So, so kids are extremely isolated. Even before corona came, this was the most isolated generation of kids. Why? Because they're the generation that has the most technology. And the generation that, I mean, we've, we've, you may have seen on Facebook, Mom, I've talked about it this week, but man, our, our daughter comes home this week and says one of her friends has a real phone. And the same day, our son comes home this week and says, hey, Mom, when are we going to get our phones? Right? Two different schools, two different groups of friends, uh, one private school, one public school, and yet everybody's got a phone. Five years old and six years old. What, what happens with all that technology? We get more and more isolated. We get more and more disconnected. That's the irony, right? And so these kids are already disconnected. They already don't have the life-giving relationships that most of us were able to grow up with. There's already challenges that come with that. And then you put coronavirus on top of it, and, and this stuff just explodes exponentially. So we need a place where our kids can connect. It's why we fought to reopen Kid City all the way back in September, man. We, we wanted to make sure that our children's ministry was open and available so our kids could, could come and have Christian friends. So they could build godly relationships, man. I, I, I want to be the biggest influence in my kid's life, and I'm grateful for teachers who are an influence in my kid's life, but I know they need friends, and I want to make sure that those friends are pointing them the right direction rather than the wrong direction. And so a children's ministry, a church family, provides for us a place for, for them to find some other kids who are like-minded, so find out that, you know what, we're, we're not the only ones whose parents do things this way. We're not the only ones whose parents have, have this set of values, right? We want them to see that this stuff actually is not as weird or, or unnormal as they may think it is. So they need a place to connect. Third gift that we can give our kids as a church is kids need a place to find spiritual parents. I need a place to find spiritual parents. Mom and dad are always going to be the biggest influence and, and always have the biggest role and responsibility. But it is biblical for us to have spiritual parents as well. In 1 Corinthians 5.15, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says this. He said, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, that word guardians is sometimes interpreted as instructors. Even if you had 10,000 teachers, he says, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So Paul says, God's given me a, a unique role in the life of many of you where I get to be a spiritual father to you. I think kids need spiritual fathers and they need spiritual mothers. I think kids need somebody else who can come alongside and speak the same things and teach the same things and reinforce the things that they're learning at home if they're learning the right things or who can come in and, and give them those things when they're not learning the right things at home. But we need spiritual parents. For me, one of my spiritual fathers is a man named Jeff Bullock. Jeff was my, my first youth pastor. 
He was my youth pastor when I moved up into youth group, and I was this terrified little nerdy sixth grader uh, who, who couldn't even imagine being in the same room with kids who were 16, 17, 18 years old, right? And, and Jeff looked out for me, and he protected me, and, and he reached out to me. I was homeschooled, and so Pastor Jeff would, would take me out sometimes. We, we'd go to Shakey's Pizza in Seattle, uh, and we would go to Shakey's, and we would hang out, and that was like the coolest thing in the world is when me and my youth pastor got to go and have, you know, like cheap buffet pizza uh, together. Like we would throw down on some pizza, and I think I would have like three Dr. Peppers, and everything was good, right, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, Uh, and and Pastor Jeff loved on me, and man, he was a spiritual father to me, and so from as long as I can remember, my mom told me I was called into ministry. My mom was a pastor's kid, uh, and she didn't tell all of her children this, but for whatever reason, she she felt God told her very early in my life that I was going to be in ministry, and so as long as I can remember, she told me that, and when my mom told me I was going to be in ministry, my response was to roll my eyes, right? My response was, hey, I got all these other things I want to do. No, I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm going to be, and that thing changed. I had all these different dreams. I mean, my dreams went from uh, things like, first, I think I wanted to be a policeman or a firefighter, uh, and then I grew up a little bit, and I wanted to be a national park ranger, and for a while, I wanted to be a photographer, and I wanted to be a professional athlete. I got really close on that last one. Uh, It it was good that God spoke into my life when he did, because if he didn't, I I was going down that path. Uh, But (laughs) I had different dreams at different seasons in my life, right? None of them involved ministry. And then when I was 14, almost 15 years old, Pastor Jeff took a a job at his home church, the church he grew up in, to go be youth pastor, and we had a going away party for him. And I remember as as I hugged Pastor Jeff goodbye, the, the last time that I got to see him before he left, he looked in my eyes and he said this, he said, Troy, when you get out of Bible college, I want you to give me a call. Now up to that point, we had never talked about Bible college, We had never talked about ministry. It wasn't something that he was like pushing everybody to do. It it had never come up once. But he saw something in me, and he spoke it out. And for the first time in my life when somebody brought up me being in ministry, it wasn't an eye roll. It wasn't something that was going to make me miss out on what I really wanted to do with my life. It was, wow, that's something that I could actually do. That's something that maybe God actually has for me. And I didn't just like commit to be a pastor right then and there, but it started a process over about the next nine or 12 months where I started praying about it and God just started speaking through a number of different ways. And he confirmed that I did have a call into ministry, which was amazing on a couple of levels. First of all, it meant that I had the opportunity to do what I'm doing right now, right? Secondly, it meant that I had to tell my mom she was right. Uh, That that part wasn't as great. Uh, I didn't look forward to that as much. But, But what happened Somebody who was a spiritual parent came alongside me and said the same thing that my parents had been saying. Their parents had built the foundation. They had talked about this for years and years and years. And then somebody comes and speaks life into it and builds on that foundation. That's what the church is supposed to be, right? Man, mom and dad are supposed to take the discipleship role and they're supposed to build that foundation. But man, God wants to call somebody else alongside of us to speak the same stuff into our kids. But you know what? It just sounds different when it comes out of the mouth of the cool youth pastor than it does when it comes out of the mouth of the mom or dad, right? Like there's something about that season where we're not ready to receive it the same way from our parents. And so I'm not saying it's not good that my mom told me. I'm glad my mom told me. I know that was the foundation. I know that was the reason that that, that my heart was ready for it when Pastor Jeff said it. But I also needed somebody else, a spiritual father, to come and speak life into that situation. Here's the great thing about being a spiritual parent. There's no expiration date on it. 
There's no timeline on it. The reality is biological parents, for the most part, they're, they're, there's a time limit on when we can be biological parents, right? Unless you're going to be Sarah, unless God's going to breathe into your womb at 90 years old, which thankfully I think most of us are glad that that doesn't happen. Not too many 90-year-olds that I think are like, yes, let me bring some kids into the world. Uh, most of us at that point are, are ready for a different season. Uh, but unless God's going to do something supernatural, there is a natural expiration date on being a biological parent. I'm bringing a kid into the world. There's no expiration date on being a spiritual parent. All of us have that opportunity. All of us have that chance to, to step in to someone's life and to do that. Now, here's the thing about being a spiritual parent. Nobody's going to show up at your door and ask you for it. I, I've been doing full-time ministry for 20 years. I've never once had somebody come to me and say, will you be my spiritual dad? Nobody's asked me that question. Uh, first service, I said that, and actually somebody did come and ask me that after service, but it was very sarcastic, so I'm not counting that as a real legitimate question. Uh, they were trying to be funny, right? We found a smart aleck. But nobody's going to come volunteer to be your spiritual kid. You're going to have to find them. You're going to have to initiate it. You're going to have to seek them out. That's the, the role and the responsibility of the sheep compared to the lamb is we're the mature one recruiting and embracing and opening the door for the one who's not mature. Man, hey, I, I want to be there for you. It doesn't mean you have to come to him and, and ask, you know, say it straight up. I want to be your spiritual father. That's creepy. Uh, that's scary. Nobody's going to say yes to that, right? Yeah. But, but you can have that conversation and, 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 man, just begin loving on them. Just begin investing in them. Just begin finding opportunities to pray for them. Find a chance to, to, to get them a gift, to celebrate things that are going on in their life. And, and make sure, man, if their parents are in the church and are involved, make sure your parents know what's going on so they don't see you as a threat or, or an issue. Make sure they know, man, you're, you're coming alongside. The reality is we need spiritual parents even after we're kids, right? Like we all need spiritual fathers and mothers. Paul's writing this not specifically to kids. He's writing this to the church in Corinth, which is mostly adults. And he says, I got to be your spiritual father. You don't have many fathers. It's a, it's a handful. It's a few. I think all of us have the right and the responsibility to become a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. Begin praying about who can you be that to? Who, who can you pour into? Who can you be that for at this season of your life? The third gift the church needs to give to kids is kids need a place to see Jesus. They need a place to see Jesus. In Matthew 19, there's this real famous story, uh, starting in verse 13. It says, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Don't you love that the disciples miss the point so often? Don't you? I, I find encouragement in that. Uh, that, that man, the, this was the handpick. This was the elite, right? These were Jesus' first-round draft picks, and they were dumb. Like, they, they just miss the point over and over again. And kids are trying to get to Jesus, and they're like, no, you're not good enough. You're not important enough. And Jesus, you can just see Jesus' face palm, right? Like, how did, who, who picked these people, right? <laughs> like, how did we get, how did I get stuck with them? Uh, and over and over again, they miss it. And I find encouragement in that because I miss it. I make mistakes, and, and I do things that are stupid, and, and Jesus loves me anyway, and he uses me anyway. But it says they brought these kids to Jesus, and, and Jesus rebukes them uh, as the, disciple, or excuse me, the disciples rebuked them. And then verse 14 says, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, right? He says, and do not hinder them. One of our jobs, one of our responsibilities as a church is to make sure we're not hindering the next generation. That, that we're not doing anything that is holding them back, that is preventing them from getting to where they want, need to be. He says, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Why, do, why does it matter for our church to invest in the next generation? Because Jesus says the next generation 
is where the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He said, when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So Jesus embraces them. He lays his hands on them. He prays for them. He loves them. He, he, he meets them right where they're at. Kids need a place where they can see Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't physically on earth anymore, right? They can't just come to church and hop up on Jesus' lap. That's not the way that it works. So how do kids see Jesus in a generation where Jesus isn't visible? So what do I mean when I say that, it, that they need to see Jesus? They need a place where they can see the power of Jesus and move. They need to see God's power move. They need to see that Jesus is real. They need a place where they can see Jesus' compassion demonstrated. That we've got to walk in the power of God. We've got to walk in the compassion of Jesus, man. That we've got to be moved by the hurts and the needs of those around us. We've got to go after the last, the lost, the least, and the lonely. These are things that, that a church is supposed to do to demonstrate this for our kids. We need to be a place of integrity. Talked about a lot of dysfunctional churches. The reality is, in the last two weeks, found about three more stories of significant Big picture, well-known ministries where somebody at the very top fell in a really spectacular way. And Every time I see one of those stories, my heart breaks. Because what happens? Jesus gets a black eye. The church gets a black eye. Those things frustrate me. But even worse than that, I know that every one of those failings represents a whole bunch of families who are going to get out of church. A whole bunch of families who are going to run away from the abuse, that are going to run away from the hurt, that are going to run away from, from the hypocrisy that's been demonstrated. We, we were talking to somebody a couple months ago, and they were talking about how excited they were to be at City Church, and they had recently started coming, and they were getting involved, and we were just kind of asking their story and their background, and this girl said, well, you know, we, we, we never really went to church growing up because something happened to my grandma, when she was going to church, and, and so my, my, parent, my mom never went to church, we never went to church. Something happened like in the 1960s, an abuse in the church, a, a failure in the church, and three generations missed out on being part of the family of God because of a failure. Now that's the work of the enemy, keeping them out, that, that, that's him up to something, but there is a need for us to walk in integrity, church. There is a, the world is starved for God's people to be people of character and integrity. And that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect because there is no perfect church and there is no perfect family. We're going to miss it. But when we do, we got to own it. We got to bring dark things out into the light. We can't run from it. We can't hide it. We can't pretend it's not there. We got to own our failures and our mistakes. Because if we don't, what's going to happen? We're just going to keep on turning people away. 60 years, three generations. Because of one mistake, because of one failure in leadership. And I don't know what that failure looked like. She didn't know what that failure looked like. She just knew grandma left church when she was very young, and she made sure none of us went to church. It's heartbreaking. It's the responsibility that we have. Kids need a place where they can see Jesus. Now, Jesus obviously is flawless. Jesus is sinless, and we're never going to be that. But we can't walk in the authenticity of Jesus. We can't walk in, in the responsibility of Jesus. These are the things that we have to do. They've got to be able to see it. The fifth thing that kids need, the gift from us, is kids need a place for their parents to grow. They need a place for their parents to grow. We've talked about it a number of times. Got to keep on hitting it. The people who are going to make the biggest impact in the life of a kid is their parents. We can come alongside them. We can be spiritual fathers and mothers. We, we, we can get involved in children's ministry and in the 662. We can do all these things, and I think we should. 
But I spent a whole lot of years in, in youth ministry, and I can stand up here and I can tell you this. The greatest indicator of whether those young people are still following Jesus today is not the quality of youth ministry we put together. It's the quality of parents they have. That's the greatest predictor, is did their parents love Jesus? Did their parents follow Jesus? Now, it's not one-to-one. There are kids whose parents truly love Jesus, and they're far from God right now. And there's kids whose parents had nothing to do with Jesus, and they are serving God right now. And I'm grateful for that, right? I'm not saying it's a perfect correlation, but I can tell you this. The greatest indicator is not how, how well I preached my messages or how awesome our youth leadership team was. The greatest indicator was what kind of parents they had. And that doesn't mean youth ministry doesn't matter. That doesn't mean kids' ministry doesn't matter. Those things matter. But the most important thing is we got to give, we got to raise up parents who love Jesus. We got to raise up parents who know Jesus. We got to raise parents who, who are able to disciple their kids and pour into their kids and live for Jesus in front of their kids. We've got to create a place where parents can grow. You see, when parents are stagnant, when they're plateaued, when they're content with where they are spiritually, what do they produce? They produce kids who are stagnant, kids who plateau, kids who are content where they're at spiritually. But when we can produce parents who are hungry, parents who who are passionate, parents who are pursuing Jesus with the very best that they can, they're going to produce kids who are passionate, kids who are hungry, kids who are pursuing Jesus with everything that they can. Because here's the reality. The reality is we teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. And so if we're going to produce a generation that loves Jesus, a generation that follows Jesus, a generation that pursues Jesus, we got to be people have followed Jesus. We got to be people who are passionate about Jesus. We got to be people who pursue Jesus. The greatest gift we can ever give to our kids is a family that loves Jesus, a family that pursues Jesus. Not a perfect family, but a family that's chasing after his best in their lives. As we prepare to close, I want to share with you one last passage talk to you about Peter in John chapter 21 as Jesus says, feed my lambs. And we talked about how we've got a responsibility to to feed those lambs. Man, that's the first thing he asks us to do as the church is to feed his lambs. Well, a few weeks later after this conversation, Jesus has ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit. He's baptized his disciples in the Holy Spirit. This is a very famous day. It's called the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter, this leader who Jesus has selected for the church, he goes out and he preaches a sermon. And this was the, the, the first sermon and the most important sermon in the history of the church. 3,000 people are about to get saved. Incredible. I mean, I can't even imagine. This is without technology, without a microphone, without an online stream. Like, it, it's, it's hard to even, like, wrap my brain around how this worked. All we know is that it did. 3,000 people give their life to Jesus as Peter preaches the word of God. You know, Peter had a pretty loud voice, right? Like, he knew how to project his voice to pull this off. And in this message, this address that he gives as the church is founded, as, as it, it begins to take root here in Jerusalem and with people from all over as they disperse back to their hometowns, Jesus, Peter says this in Acts 2.38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is why we tell people, man, if you make a fresh start with Jesus, the first thing you need to do is get baptized, right? It's, it's, it's the principle. It's how it begins. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. That means all of us, right? And this is for everybody. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus has paid the price for our sins to be forgiven. And he says, and you will receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, what I've always really paid attention to in that last verse there is that this is for all who are far off. Because that means me. That means you, right? We are physically far off from Jerusalem. We're a long ways away. I don't know how many thousand miles, but it's a few. Uh, We are 
time-wise, generationally very far off from when Peter said this. We're 2,000 years later, right? So 2,000 years ago, as the church is instituted, the Holy Spirit's thinking about you, and he's thinking about me. I think that's awesome. But here's what else that verse says. He says, this promise is for you and your children. 2,000 years ago, as Peter gives the address, gives the message, gets ready to give the first altar call, the first chance for people to respond to the voice of God. He says, this message is for you, but I'm not just thinking about you. It's for your kids. Why? Because I think it was very fresh in his mind that Jesus said, feed my lambs. I think it was very deeply impressed upon Peter that your kids matter, that, that part of the responsibility, part of what this thing is about is reaching that next generation. And so he says this promise is for you and this promise is for your kids. Would you?